Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. We celebrate him. We put all of our hope in him. Our lives are in him and all that he has done on our behalf. Lord, help us to grow in our knowledge and our love, our heart for him, that we might bring honor and glory to you in this world. And now, God, open us up to your word. Help us to learn and to be changed more into the image of Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So this Christmas, um, it was confirmed that Aaron and I are bad parents. (laughs) We were putting our Christmas tree up, and we're going through all of the ornaments. And we're pulling these things out, and we've got, you know, Kira, my daughter, my oldest, you know, we've got her one-year ornament and her two-year ornament and her three-year ornament, and, like, she's nine. We already have her 12-year ornament and her 13-year. I mean, she's just set. And then we're pulling out all these things that she's made. I mean, just ornament after ornament. Um, and then we're looking. Oh, wait. Okay, there, there it is. My oldest son does have a one-year ornament. Put that up. Poor third child. He didn't even have an ornament at all. Like, thank goodness for Amazon. We could, we could like, backorder. We found a 2013 ornament for the one-year first Christmas, and we just pulled that and bought it and had it sent to us to put it on the tree. <laughs> Third children just really get the short end of things. I mean, you just kind of forget about them. Uh, and a third child just went, yep, that's, that's true. But as we think about being parents, there's this struggle with nature versus nurture and how much is, you know, which one. And I actually have solved it, just in case you want to know. Um, Yeah, when my kids do something well, it's nurture. And when they do something bad, it's nature, my wife's. (laughs) Absolutely kidding. Um, In fact, my wife was the kind of child that, like, she got herself in trouble. Like, her parents didn't have to actually discipline her because when she did something wrong, she'd put herself in her room for time out. My daughter is a little bit like that. My boys, they're not. Raising kids is challenging. Uh, trying to figure out what it is that makes them tick, why one child is like this and another child is like this, Why one child did this one day, but then the next day, they did a really good thing. And you're thinking, what happened? What is going on? What is my role? How does it all play together? Today, that is kind of an overarching idea through this genealogy. Instead of taking individual people like I did last week, I'm going to take little groups of like grandfather, father, son, and kind of tell their story together and the way in which their lives kind of interacted with each other, related to each other, impacted each other. Um, And in each one, just see if we can kind of pull something out. We're looking at families today and kind of all the messiness that is part of that. And I'm gonna do something I rarely do, I'm gonna use a podium. There's so much history in all of this that I'm actually going to, like, I have some notes and things. I know, we'll see how that goes. 
going to be weird. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, in the genealogy, now, we made it up to Perez last week, and so we are going to kick off here in verse 3, Matthew chapter 1, partway through verse 3, Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab. And I'm going to stop and just say this about Hezron and Ram. We don't know anything about them. All we know is that they were dads and they had kids. But Scripture doesn't give us anything else. If you go look them up, you don't find any stories about those two figures. But I will say this. They are in the lineage of Christ. These two guys are part of the ancestry of the Savior. So we know nothing about them. They get no honor, no glory. Nothing is said wonderful about them, but they get this little tiny thing that is really big. Um, Almost no mention, but they get to be in the line of Christ. That's what we know about them. Keep going. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. I want to talk for a minute about Nashon and Aminadab. Aminadab is similar to the two guys before that. We don't know much about them, but we do know something about his kids that might say something about him. Here's what we know about Aminadab. His daughter marries Aaron, the high priest. In order for that to happen, there had to be something significant about their family. You don't take just any random person and make that person the wife of the first high priest. Something about Aminadab's family made it so that his daughter would become the wife of the first high priest. Now his son, Nishan, who we're talking about right here, Nishan becomes the lead of the tribe of Judah. And here's what we know about Nishan. It's not much, it's just a little bit. Nishan is the one when, if you go into the book of Numbers, All the tribes are put together in the whole first 10 chapters of the book of Numbers. It's all about putting the tribes in order because they're getting ready to march toward the promised land. So they're getting them in order. And part of that order means setting up the worship time. And the tribes are supposed to bring a sacrifice forward. Now, in order, Judah was number four in the counting. But Nishan, the lead of Judah, He is the first guy to step up to make the first sacrifice. And the rabbis pick up, and there's a tradition about Nishan that he was the one who would burst forward. The rabbis say, and this is not, there's no, we don't have any history for this, but the rabbis say he's the first one to step into the sea when it parts. I mean, if you can imagine being on that beach and these massive walls of water how loud the crashing of this water would have been and what it would have taken to be the first person to step into that. He's considered the first guy to step into it. Um, He was a man of action, a guy who took his faith seriously. Um, Let's be the first one. I'm going to step up and make the sacrifice. Um, That's all we know about him. What I found interesting, and I'm, I'm conjecturing a little bit, Raise your hand if you're proud of your kids. 
Good. Hopefully your hands are up. If you have kids, that is. I know at times, and you read stories, you hear stories, you get the anecdotal evidence, uh, that at times um, there may be a little bit of jealousy in parents as their kids get attention and honor and glory and success in a place maybe where you didn't. There are parents who try to live through their kids. You know, I didn't succeed at this, but I'm going to make sure you succeed at this, no matter if it kills you. Sometimes the kids can become pawns. The kids can become things that we're, we're trying to get our name out there. And the one thing I will say about Aminadab is we know nothing about him, but his kids seem to be pretty awesome. I wonder how much pride he had in his kids if he was willing just to let all that go. I don't need the honor. My kids are getting it, and I'm good with that. Keep going with me. Um, Nishan, the father of Solomon, Solomon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. All right. Here's a family. We're going to look at Nishan, Solomon, Boaz, and Obed all together. Hey, this group. So you got great-grandfather, grandfather, father, son. If you take those four and put them together, the only one we really know hardly anything about is Boaz. And, and everybody knows Boaz's story, right? Let me just, I mean, this is my summary of Boaz's story. All right, this is found in Ruth. Boaz is the man who steps up to redeem the property and the family of somebody who lost a husband, right? Naomi lost her husband, Elimelech. She then, her daughters lost their husbands, and so she told her daughters, just go back to the land where you can be provided for, and her daughters say, no, we're going with you. And so they go back, and they have nothing. And in this culture and in this time, those women could not have provided long-term for themselves, so Ruth, to take care of her, goes out and she starts into one of these fields. It's Boaz's field. And eventually, Boaz will step up to the plate and he will go to the town gates and he will become the kinsman redeemer. And he will come because there's a relative that's actually closer to the family than Boaz who has the right to redeem them. Boaz will say to that one, are you going to exercise your right or not? Because if you're not, I'm going to. And he will step up, and here's what he'll end up doing. He'll purchase their property that needs to be done. He will take Ruth as his wife, and he will take his first child, Obed, and allow that child to, raise, to be the offspring of Elimelech. He will essentially give up his firstborn so that the brother can continue, or the, the other husband, the line can continue which is part of the reason that the original relative wouldn't. And I don't know if you remember last week, Judah, his second son would not have a child with Tamar because he knew that that child would end up raising up offspring really for his brother and he wanted his own offspring. Boaz doesn't do that. Boaz is willing to step up and make all of that sacrifice to do the right thing. Now, the story is much more complicated than that, and there's so much more going on in that story. 
And at some point, Heather would like to preach the entire book straight through. It's one of her favorite books. It is an amazing story. But remember Nashon, the guy who steps forward in his faith? Now his grandson is doing a similar thing. Boaz is stepping up in this huge way to redeem this family, to redeem this land, to redeem even a family line that he has no connection to because that is the right thing to do in this situation. And he steps up to do it. Um, I read the story this week about Heather Kruger. Um, she was diagnosed two years ago with stage four liver disease. Um, at diagnosis, she was given a 50% chance of living two months. I mean, it was serious. Another man, uh, Craig Chris Dempsey, former Marine, he learned about it. And he got in touch with her. He was tested. He stepped up and went through an eight-hour operation to give her part of his liver so that she could live. They didn't even know each other. He didn't know this woman. He saved her life. Uh, there's a couple of quotes by her. I mean, she's just in total shock. Even from the phone call, she wasn't sure if it was even real. What stranger just steps up to go through this to save somebody else. That's Boaz. That's what faith can do. That's what being, doing the right thing can be a part of. It can be a sacrifice, but it can make such a difference. And Boaz saves a family. I mean, grandmother, mother, saves them all um, by what he does. Let's keep going. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. I'm just going to talk about, actually, I'm not. Let's keep going. I want to bring Solomon in here a little bit. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. All right. This is going to take a little bit of time. David. He may be, and I, and I have not researched this, I haven't looked statistically at this, but I think we may know more about David than any other single person in Scripture. If you look at the amount of information we have on him, and you look at his story from when he's a shepherd to growing up and being anointed to running from Saul to being king to being the warrior, I mean, just... We have this massive amount of information on David. And most of it is good. I mean, David's got a good history. There's a reason that David is the man after God's own heart. There's a reason that David is the one to whom Messiah will be like. I mean, this is David the king. But let's back up a minute and look at his dad, Jesse. We don't know a ton about Jesse. In fact, his main kind of claim to fame, and you, I don't think you'd want this claim to fame. His main claim to fame is when the prophet comes to anoint the new king. And Jesse is there, and he is excited. I mean, one of his sons is going to be anointed to be the next king. How exciting would that be? 
And so Samuel comes and he's doing all the anointing and they get to the end of his kids and it's like, no, none of them are it. And everybody in that scene are convinced that somebody here is going to be it. And the reason they're convinced is because let's look back for a minute at the first king, Saul. The choice of Saul was that they would have a king like all the other nations. That's what they wanted. We want a king like all the other nations. And so God gives them Saul who stands a foot in, in biblical literature, especially Old Testament. You get very few physical descriptions. When you get them, they're usually significant. They have some bearing on the story because they just don't, I mean, tell me what most of those characters in the Old Testament look like. You can't. I mean, this isn't a novel where they spend like a page telling. They just don't give much description. But Saul is a head taller than everybody else. Because in the ancient world, the king is the one who's out in front leading. Saul is this big, strong, charismatic military leader just like all the other nations. And he becomes a total failure. But God gave him what they wanted. But then when God chooses a king, it is different. And even the prophet is seeing the sons come before him. And Jesse's like, yeah, here's my kids. One of them's gonna be king. And you get to the end and like, you have any more? Not really. I mean, I guess I got a little one. He's out there with sheep where he belongs. That's Jesse's claim to fame, really, is the moment that he completely gets it wrong. That he has no confidence in his youngest child. Do you treat your children differently? Are there kids that you think deep down subconsciously this one is going to make it and I'm giving more to that one than to this one? That's that little tiny picture you get of Jesse, is this father who kind of leaves the little one out there to take care of the sheep where he belongs, and yet, you all know the story, God doesn't look at the outside, but the inside. And the story of David, if you were to take all of it and try and sum it up, it's the story of heart. It starts right there, looking on the inside, it's the language that later, when Saul's being condemned by Samuel, Samuel will say, a man after the heart of God. Later on in Acts, when the story's being retold, you'll get that famous line, a, a man after God's own heart. And when you read the, the story of the kings, the good kings have the heart of David, and the bad kings don't have the heart of David. And heart keeps getting associated with David even after he passes and you're going through the lineage of the kings. Because at the core, David's story is the story of a heart after God. Which means this, because let's talk about David's sin. You think you've messed up? David messed up. I mean, I feel even bad saying it in that way. It's so horrendous. Hey, this is David's story. Things are going pretty well up until partway through 2 Samuel. And then the first clue you get, the army is off at battle. David the king who should be leading them is back at home. 
standing on a rooftop. And David's looking around, and he sees a woman, and he thinks, I want that woman. Please don't let anybody tell you that Bathsheba can be blamed for this, as if somehow she seduced him or forced him or something. She had no power whatsoever in this circumstance. The king wanted her. The king was going to get her. And so the king sleeps with her. Then they have the child, because that's not even the worst of it. Then to cover up his sin, he finds out who her husband is, makes sure her husband is the front line, which, by the way, where should David be? At the front line. Sends the husband to the front line so he'll die and David's secret can be kept. That is awful. However, when he's confronted with the truth, David confesses his sin. David owns what he did. Ultimately, a heart after God is not perfection. It is not always doing the right thing every single time. But it's following God no matter what you do. Whether you're doing the right thing or the wrong thing, it's being able to turn and have the humility to recognize your sinfulness, to accept the consequences. He was a man after God's own heart because I think he wanted what God wanted more than anything else. He didn't always succeed, but that's what he wanted more than anything else. A man after God's own heart. Now, unfortunately, Solomon, who follows David, Solomon, as you all know, is known for what? Wisdom. You know, he makes a great prayer. When God says, you can have anything, Solomon says, I want wisdom. That's a great prayer. Wisdom is really, really important. But Solomon seems to lack something. Heart. See, Solomon is able to do some things. Solomon is able to solve everybody else's problems. Solomon can see what's going on between two people and have the wisdom to say, you need to do this, you need to do this. I can see, I have insight into what's going on with you. Solomon has some administrative policies that expand the borders of Israel more than his father or grandfather did. He's very aggressive. He is rich. He is well known. And yet, Solomon can't seem to see his own issues. Solomon can't seem to take his wisdom and turn it this way. Solomon has no heart to recognize that all of his foreign wives, all of his horses, all of his fame, all of his money is turning him away from God. And ultimately, it will impact his son. We'll talk about him in just a moment. Wisdom and intelligence are really important. Please don't hear me say anything else. However, without heart, they can be deadly. I was researching really intelligent, evil people. Trying to figure out, just, just to see this out there. Really intelligent, evil people. And one of the ones that is interesting is there is so much speculation 
about the IQ of Hitler. And yet, it appears, as far as I can tell, based on all the history, that we don't actually have his IQ. But here's what we do have. Four of his closest advisors had IQs over 140. Half percent of the population has those IQs. He was surrounded by brilliant men and did atrocious things because wisdom and intelligence alone are not enough. Heart, having a heart after God, knowing how to use your wisdom and your intelligence, knowing how to use your power and your strength and your fame and whatever it is God has blessed you with, using it for his kingdom wanting what he wants more than anything else, even when you mess it up. That's what you saw in David, and that's what Solomon seems to lose. And then, keep going in the story, or in the genealogy, I guess this really isn't much of a story, is it? Name after name. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asaph. Uh, Three more. Solomon, Rehoboam, Rehoboam and Abijah, um, and Asaph, these guys. Hey, Solomon starts this very aggressive uh, policy. We're going to expand the borders. We're going to get more money in. Well, guess what his son does? His son takes the same policy. In fact, here's an interesting part of it. Rehoboam is young, and as he's at his coronation, some of the older men, some of the men who worked with Solomon, the advisors, They are telling Rehoboam, you need to cut back your father's policies. They are bad for the kingdom. They are putting everybody at risk. Okay, that's one side. On the other side, there are advisors to Rehoboam that are his age, that are his friends, that are his buddies, that are telling him, no, we like our money. We like our fame. We like being able to get whatever we want. You keep doing your father's policies. I want to say something to everybody in the room, because basically, in some way, we are all young. There is somebody older and wiser than us. Don't turn away from the wisdom of those who have gone before us. It is so easy to want to believe that we have all the right answers. It's so easy to want to listen to the people around us who want to tell us that we have all the right answers because it makes us feel good. It makes us feel like, yeah, I can get what I want. We need to have the humility to listen to the people who have gone before us, to those who have gone through maybe some things we're in right now, to those who have something to offer, a perspective that we might not have. But that takes a bit of humility, and Rehoboam didn't have it. And you know what ends up happening? The split of the kingdom. This king's actions will lead to Israel fracturing. Because the ten tribes in the north, they will not stand for this anymore. And they will split. And Rehoboam will have to flee for his life. He'll raise up an army and try and take it back, and it will fail And it will cause war between the two kingdoms. These are brothers here. This is Israel fighting itself. They have a civil war. 
Because this young king won't listen. And by the time he does, it's too late. There is a point where a prophet comes to him and tells him, stop. You are killing people unnecessarily, and this is not God's will. And Rehoboam finally stops. But the damage has been done. And it keeps going because then you look at his son, Abijah. Guess what his son does? Continues the fighting, continues the war, does the same things that his father does. Continues this fracturing of the kingdom. But you know why he's saved? I think if I just make one point, this is the point that I want to make for the entire thing I'm talking about. He is saved because of David, his great-grandfather. This is what God says. Because of David's faithfulness, I am not going to take you out. Here's the point I want to make. I think you've probably all heard this before. The, the, like the key to your character is what you're doing when nobody's looking. Like that kind of idea. Um, I want to make it even bigger. I, I want to say to you that what you do, your individual actions throughout your entire life, you have no idea how God is going to use them in your life or in somebody else's or in a whole other generation. That your faithfulness right now is not just about you. My faithfulness is not just about me. It is bigger that God has this interweaving of people's lives that we cannot see. And you have no idea that an action you may do today may be something significant. A faithful choice you make right now, it may be in the life of your grandchild that it comes back. You need to understand that your life and my life are bigger than me. They're bigger than me and my kids, my family. They're bigger than even our church. Because God can use all this interconnectedness of our lives in ways we cannot even fathom and we may never see. But our faithful, he uses David's faithfulness in the life of this boy, this boy king, to do something. That story, Heather and Chris, the lady with the stage four liver disease and the man, they don't even know each other, and he comes and he gives part of his liver to save her and she lives and um, they got engaged last month. That was not part of Chris's plan when he stepped up. He had no idea. He didn't even know this girl. She didn't know him. But his faithfulness two years ago ended up turning into a wedding for these two. You have no idea the way God may use your faithfulness. You have no idea when you are following him, the lives you may impact that you don't even know you're impacting. But that's because God uses us in this great, big, beautiful story that he has going that we only get to see little parts of.
All right, I'm going to stop. I got some more to go, but, you know, it's time, so we'll stop. That's how this series is going. We just go until time says it's time to end. I, I actually did think for about five years, um, I'm not sure I've, I've told Erin this or not, uh, she gets to hear sometimes things like as I'm preaching and then later on I hear about the fact that she heard it for the first time while I was preaching. I used to think of myself as a pretty amazing dad. How many of you know my daughter? Just raise your hand if you know my daughter. How many of you think my daughter is pretty awesome? Everybody, you raise your hand. <laughs> she is an amazing little girl. I mean, really quite amazing. And I raised her for her, her for first about five years, I, I was raising her. And, and there was a little part of me going, I am a darn good parent. Because I saw other kids that were out of control and like, man, if they could just be more like me as a parent. <laughs> and then I had a boy. <laughs> I'm not a very good parent. <laughs> just all went downhill from that point. But this morning, I almost didn't make it to church because I had a small heart attack this morning. This is what happened. We're getting ready for church as we do each morning, and we're running late as we do every Sunday morning. And almost an offhanded comment, because I'm trying to get one child ready while getting another child fed while getting this done over here, and I said, Kira, get your shoes. Everybody, we've got to get our shoes on. Kira, and I'm talking to her, and my son is going by me, my five-year-old, and he just turned five. He's heading on a, up the stairs, and I'm thinking he's going to play. I'm like, dude, we needed to leave five minutes ago. What are you doing? I'm getting my shoes on like you told me to. <laughs> You're doing what? <laughs> that has never happened before. Like, I tell him go get his shoes on, and he doesn't do it. I literally made an offhand. we got to get our shoes on. And my five-year-old was getting his shoes on. It was incredible. That is not me. It might be my wife, but it is not me. I have learned a sense that I only have a very small impact overall. It seems like they're just going to do whatever they want to do, and I'm trying. But I do know who impacts my two-year-old, my five-year-old. My two-year-old says and does whatever his older brother does. And half the time, he doesn't understand what it is, so he has no context for it. And so he says things that don't make sense in the midst of what he's saying it, because that's what brother said, but yeah, he was saying what actually meant something. You're just saying it, and like it doesn't fit what you're doing, but he follows what his brother does. And this is what I thought this morning. The more I can impact my five-year-old, the more I'm going to impact my two-year-old. I don't know how much I can impact my two-year-old. I keep trying, and he just ignores me. But he listens to his brother, so there's a door there. And God gives us relationships. God gives us open doors. God gives us ways. It may not always be the ways we want, but if we are willing to be faithful and step into them, God can do something with it. Maybe in that moment, maybe a year down the road, maybe 10 years down the road,
But if we will take the moments that God gives us and faithfully step into those, God can do something with it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the stories of the past, the lives that we get to peer into, to see how they responded to you and how they didn't, uh, to learn things from their lives. Father, help it to sink in. Help us to be more faithful parents, friends, relatives, neighbors, and above all, disciples of Jesus Christ, that we would be those who have a heart after our God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.